whistle and I will come to ye, my lad. Oh, whistle and I will come to ye, my lad. Though father and mother should be his game mad. Oh, whistle and I will come to ye, my lad. HPPodcraft.com I suppose you'll be getting away pretty soon now. Full term is over, Professor, said a person not in the story to the Professor of Ontography, soon after they had sat down next to each other at a feast in the hospitable hall of St. James College. The Professor was young, neat, and precise in speech. Yes, he said, my friends have been making me take up golf this term, and I mean to go to the East Coast, in point of fact, to Burnstow, I dare say you know it, for a week or ten days to improve my game. I hope to get off tomorrow. Oh, Parkins, said his neighbour on the other side, if you're going to Burnstow, I wish you'd look at the site of the Templar's Preceptory, and let me know if you think it would be any good to have a dig there in the summer. That was the opening of M.R. James' A Whistle, and I'll Come to You, My Lad. A story well-loved by H.P. Lovecraft, and that's why we're talking about it on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Here at hppodcraft.com, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. Our reader was none other than the illustrious John Hancock. Welcome back, John. We are not alone, Chad and I. We have a, a third member for this particular episode, a guest we've had on the show before, and one I am very happy to welcome back. Mr. Matt Parisi. Thanks for having me. We brought Matt on for this one, even though there are no fish creatures in the story. So, new territory. (laughs) That's true. I didn't even think about that. Well, we figured it's time to give you a go at something else. Possibly what I think might be a werewolf story, but we can debate that. I also want to mention that Matt has just released a new novel called Nonprofit. Congratulations, Matt. Oh, thanks very much. Thanks. Here's the official description. Thrust into the bizarre labyrinth of DC society, John McManus struggles to rescue a bankrupt nonprofit while starting a family. Wackiness ensues. It's <laughs> 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 got a funny description because I'm not sure if wackiness is, is quite right. Like, the book is really funny. I, I loved it, but the yeah. situation the main character is placed in you know, he's hired and immediately realizes that not only is his nonprofit going bankrupt, but he's going to be responsible for that bankruptcy, even though he didn't cause it. I was that was kind of a, like a thriller. I mean, it was really horrifying that yeah. that had happened to him. I, I, actually, a lot of the book played like horror to me in that he has to infiltrate this kind of awful society of rich people in D.C. <laughs> I mean, they're kind of monstrous in their appetites and the way that they, they act is really foreign. And I, I just really enjoyed the book, man. Oh, thanks very much. Thanks. And you actually, I mean, it's some, I know it's a work of fiction, but you have worked in that world of nonprofits in, in D.C., right, Matt? Yeah, I, I kind of just wanted to write a book about nonprofits in general, because anybody who's had an experience working at a nonprofit knows, I mean, they can just be very strange, bizarre places where things look one way on the outside, but inside they're all kind of dysfunctional and weird. Right. And they have these crazy fundraisers that are far more expensive than the money that's actually being raised for the cause. Right? Yes. Not not all of them. Yeah. But but yeah, some of them for sure. And uh, Matt will also have a book out in June called Dead White Guys, A Father, His Daughter and the Great Books of the Western World. What can you tell us about that? Uh, well, the Great Books of the Western World was a, uh, a set produced in 1954 by the Encyclopedia Britannica and the University of Chicago. And it's a series of like 54 books. They're really the classic canon books like Plato, Aristotle and to Shakespeare, Milton, and right up into the modern period to William James and Freud. And I wanted to write a book for my daughter to give her those books because they're really not encountered anymore in the classic liberal education now. Higher education has really become technical oriented. It's aimed towards getting you a job. So I just wanted to write a book 
for her about those books, but, you know, introduce them in an accessible way to her. Outstanding. And you can pre-order that now from Amazon, I believe, as well. Uh, yes, you can. Pick up Nonprofit and pre-order this book. You're going to get a treasure trove of Matt Barisi instant classics. Yeah. <laughs> now onto the story that we're covering this week, A Whistle. And I'll come to you, my lad. Hey, what was that music that we heard at the top? Yeah, at the top of it, that was a rendition of the song, A Whistle, and I'll Come to You, My Lad, done by Gene Redpath. Now, Gene Redpath is a Scottish singer who did a lot of work in the U.S. She was on Prairie Home Companion and did a lot of NPR stuff. Uh, she's really a nice singer, kind of a folk singer, but she's Scottish, and the guy that wrote that song, Robert Burns, is also Scottish, and he was an 18th century poet and songwriter. He was somebody that inspired M.R. James, the writer of the story, and that is why the story is named after that. Gotcha. I assumed from the title that it would be a, a touching story about a boy and his werewolf. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why I wanted to do it this month. Yeah, uh, and we can get through the story. I was a little disappointed there was no werewolf. Well, well you know, again, I've I've got a theory about a werewolf. I've got some theories this. too. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So we're, we'll we'll so, talk about that at the end of the story. <laughs> this is a classic Mr. James story. This is probably one of the ones that is the most famous, uh, specifically because I. And this is my opinion here, but in 1968, the BBC did a dramatization of the story. And I watched it. It's pretty strange and very creepy, kind of slow, in my opinion. But it was the 60s. It's black and white. It's very, very creepy. And I think it impacted a lot of people. And that was the one that was first shown at Christmas. And it kind of started a tradition here in the UK that BBC shows M.R. James adaptations at Christmas time. It's kind of the, you know, your spooky ghost story around Christmas. And I think that a lot of people grew up into M.R. James, and that's why maybe why he's kind of has this resurgence recently in the last, you know, 40, 50 years. Because of those adaptations. Because of those adaptations, yeah. And this has been adapted even as recently as 2010. There was a version with John Hurt in it. Yeah. Again, for Christmas, because the story itself was actually first published in 1904 in Ghost Stories of an Antiquary, which is a collection of stories that he'd originally written as Christmas entertainments yeah. for people, his friends, and certain students at Eton and King's College, where he was a provost. So th this is a Christmas story, and, and the whole idea of the ghost story as a Christmas entertainment is something that he's strongly associated with. Yeah. Enough preamble. Let's get into the story. Breezy, do you want to start us off? Well, the story starts off with a young professor, Parkins, who's off to the east coast of England, Burnstow, to brush up on some golfing for a week or so. A colleague asks him if he'd like to check out some old Templar ruins around the Earl where he's going. Parkins says he'll give it a look if he gives him the details. And he's talking about the Knights Templar, who right. were like a Christian military order. In the Middle Ages, I guess when I think of Crusaders, that's what they are, right? The, the Knights Templar. Well, yeah, yeah. Let's not get into the Templar. That's a whole. That's a very complicated. <laughs> to just say that it is. The I know. Well, they were they were they were like military guys, but then they were also banking guys, and they were very important in the Middle Ages. And this preceptory would have been one of their headquarters, so a good place to dig, and you might find some Jesus nunchucks or like you know, <laughs> like, like I mean, you know, Christian weaponry. Uh, right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I really like that opening line when he says. Uh, Full term is over, professor, said a person not in the story. <laughs> it was kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of, of weird bits that are like that throughout this whole story that are a little on the silly side. Yeah, there's a couple of moments where they're like, somebody said something, but you don't need to know who that guy is. So yeah. I'm not going to tell you his name. Well, when they're playing golf, they just go, 
Now, I'm not going to go into all the golf talk because I don't really know much about it and I don't care about it. So Yeah, I thought that was really funny. He said, uh, now let's play through or whatever golf people would say is basically <laughs> what the line is. <laughs> Which for a writer is hilarious. It, it immediately makes me think of that throw mama from a train scene where Billy Crystal is teaching the writing class and the woman's written a story about a submarine but has no idea how submarines work. <laughs> all of her descriptions are like the man with the hat said this to the person who was looking through the round window. You know, <laughs> Maybe you should learn about this. Do a little research at least before you write about it <laughs> now the place where he's going being worn away by the sea a little bit right yeah yeah you know that um we talked about that a lot of these seafront places that have been around because england's pretty old country mm-hmm. they are eroding away at like that dunwich down south where you know i went mm-hmm. large portions of the city have fallen into the sea and what's left of the city is pushed right up against the shore so in parkin saying i'm going to go there to work on my golf game and he mentions that he's lodging in this place uh the globe in yeah well the the, the fella brings up that these ruins are right next to that globe in this guy disney mm-hmm. is his name uh which we find out later and he says you know if you check it out i'd, I'd appreciate it. he goes oh yeah well i can get over there and do a bunch of writing and get some stuff he goes well no 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 no, no. just check it out and see what it's like and then let me know you know don't it's not a big it's not a big deal mm-hmm. and he goes um so why are you staying at the globe and he and he says oh well i couldn't find any other place to stay because most of the lodgings don't open in the winter time this is one of the few places that did in fact the only room i can get has got two beds in it and then all of a sudden you hear two beds did you say <laughs> this guy rogers joins the conversation and uh he's like oh well if you got two beds then i'll join you <laughs> This this was my I love this part of the story because the guy is really insistent on going with him and he he keeps trying to refuse him politely and let him down easy but the guy just won't give up he's like no I'm coming don't worry about it <laughs> that's like the part of the story that actually struck me as being the most horrific just somebody inviting themselves <laughs> along to your vacation and being part of a society that is far too polite to just tell him to bug off you know <laughs> he does it's, do it though that's the best part he does try to tell him look you're gonna get in my way i got work to do please don't come the guy's like no no old chap i'll go and i'll i'll keep the ghosts away yeah <laughs> right then that gets Park parker in a bit of a, a snooty mood because he said hey look buddy i don't believe in ghosts I, I thought maybe the whole reason that rogers was doing this was because everybody knows if you mention ghosts Parkins goes nuts, so they're just kind of winding him up, right? Yeah, and I thought this guy, Rogers, was actually just pulling his leg about it and winding him mm-hmm. up, and then he wasn't really going to go on a trip with him, because at the end <laughs> of this whole section, he talks about, everybody says, you know, that Parkins just, he's a straight shooter, he's a you know good professor, he has no sense of humor whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, they say he's kind of like an old woman. Yeah, and <laughs> Rogers actually is serious. He is a, he is actually going to go with him. Yeah, he's not Parkins wants him or not. Which can you believe that? No. <laughs> it thought this uh, a waitress at this restaurant I was at this week told me a story about she lives in Santa Monica and she walked out of her apartment at night and there was a guy like a a drunk guy sleeping in her laundry room of her apartment. <laughs> he just invited himself in and figured that was a good place to sleep. But my favorite part was that she opened up the door and says, "Hey, man, you can't." be here you know and he goes oh okay you want to hang out (laughs) she said no i don't want to hang out get out of here (laughs) well so parkins if rogers is going to go and and occupy this other bed he's not going right away he'll show up later to meet with him at first parkins is on his own and he heads out to burnstow checks in at the globe inn people are nice at the globe inn he has a splendid welcome and the folks there are golfers. Yeah, everybody in the place is there to, to work on their golf game. And he makes a, a, a friend the next day when he goes out playing. Yeah, Colonel Wilson, who he and Wilson go out 
to play a little golf. They say practice. So the colonel seemed to be having a bad game, and he got really surly. Uh, so Parkins just kind of made some excuse and left him uh, to take a walk. Then he decides to take a walk, and he, he stumbles upon the Templar ruins that the guy was talking about. He literally stumbles upon them. He trips and falls. When he gets up, he looks, and the ground is uneven, and there's these areas with mounds and divots. And he realizes, oh, wait, that under these mounds, it's mortar from the building, and this must be the preceptory. Yeah, he knows that the Templars built the churches in a circular way. So when he sees the, the stones are in a circle, he knows that that's the building or the foundation of the building. He pokes around it with his knife and some ground falls in and he can make out this hole in the masonry. And when he reaches in there, he finds this cylindrical object, this metal tube about four inches long. Uh, it's night by this point, so it's a little too dark for him to examine it. He just puts it in his pocket and he leaves, deciding he'll come back to the ruins the next day and, and do a little further searching. The area that he says he finds it at is where he thinks would have been a likely place for a platform or an altar. Maybe this thing might have some particular significance. And I love the attitude towards archaeology in the in the early nineteenth or the early twentieth century. Just finders keepers, basically. He just takes it. <laughs> no reason to examine like the you know where it lay or anything like that. Just just take it, put it in your pocket. And then he forgets about it later. <laughs> I know. Well, as he's leaving the site with his spoils in his pocket, he notices that he's got some company following him. Uh, it says there's a rather indistinct personage who seemed to be making great efforts to catch up to him, but made little, if any, progress. It, there was an appearance of running about his movements, but the distance between he and Parkins didn't lessen. I thought that was kind of an interesting, trippy effect, you know, that the person seems to be hurrying up to meet him, but he's not getting any closer. There's a, And then there's this odd passage where he sort of fantasizes that it's the devil following him. In his un un unenlightened days, he'd read of meetings in such places, which even now would hardly bear thinking of. So I, I guess he means sort of the stuff that we've been discussing with Washington Irving. You know, there's a, it, wherever you might find a treasure or something, the devil's usually hanging about. It even says, he thought, if I looked back and caught sight of a black figure sharply defined against the yellow sky and saw that it had horns and wings, I wonder whether I'd run for it or if I'd just hang out here. <laughs> so it's, I, I couldn't understand. I had to read that paragraph a couple times to understand what he was getting at. Yeah. But he decides it would be awkward for me to wait for this guy to catch up since I don't know him. Plus, he might be the devil. So I'm going to run to dinner. <laughs> So, yeah, he gets in there for dinner, uh, hangs with the colonel who's, you know, calmed down. He's over not doing well in his practice. They play some bridge. Now, when he's about to hit the hay, the boots shows up. What did he do? Is his coat or something? I think cleaned his jacket and straightened the room. And he says, like Matt said, hey, I found something in your coat and I put it on the dresser. You know, Parkins has completely forgotten all about it. <laughs> yeah, this artifact that he's found. This ancient metallic artifact. It's probably at least a thousand years old, at least. <laughs> He goes, oh, yeah, I got that. So he goes back to his room uh, and he takes a gander at it and he realizes, oh, you know what? It actually looks like it's a whistle. He gets to clean the dirt out of it and everything like that because there's still dirt in it. I kind of imagined a gym whistle, but it can't be like a gym whistle. <laughs> <laughs> no, it says it's in the manner of a modern dog whistle. Might be something that you would call the ghost of a werewolf with, if that's indeed what we're dealing with. There you go, <laughs> ghost of a werewolf. As he's examining this thing, uh, he, he looks out at the sea and notes that there's uh, somebody wandering around on the shore in front of the inn. So it might even be that person that was following him before. Now, he, when he's looking at the whistle, he sees there are these legends or inscriptions on the front and the back of it. One of them says, Fla fur flebis. I, I read around, and I, I think it's fragments of Latin. Uh, there's a site called Ghosts and Scholars that I can link out to. Uh, oh. It said there's some disagreement as to whether the word should be furbis, flabis, flebis, or fur, flabis, flebis, but it would basically translate to, you will steal it, you will blow it, you will weep. Oh, wow. Or if, <laughs> if you blow it, you will weep. Or um, 
thief, if you blow this whistle, you'll be sorry. Something like that. <laughs> oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, pretty weird. And then the other inscription, quis est iste qui venetit, unit, uh, I'm... I should be able to read that better, but I can't. It's a dead language, Pfeiffer. Don't worry about it. It basically means who is this who is coming. And when he reads that Latin inscription, he he translates it and goes, oh, I bet I could make it out if I do indeed blow this whistle. So he does. And when he does, it sort of makes him see a picture in his mind. The sound, too, seemed to have a power which many scents possess of forming pictures in the brain. And he gets this sort of vision of a wide, dark expanse at night with a fresh wind blowing and in the midst a lonely figure. So he's like, whoa, that's crazy. How did that happen? And then he blows the whistle again and a little bit harder. He doesn't get that image, that mental image doesn't come to him again. Because there's this huge gust of wind that blows through the window. I mean, it's really difficult for him to get the window closed after he's blown that second burst from the whistle. It's such a cool device, actually, the whistle. You know, in in ghost stories, there'll be like maybe a, a book if you read aloud, will cause something to come. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, in The Evil Dead, you have the tape recorder. There's all sorts of, like, you know, <laughs> enchanted mirrors. There's lots of devices to connect us with the other side. But this is the first time I've only I've seen it with a whistle. I've never seen a whistle before. Or since. <laughs> no, you've actually seen a whistle before. I've seen whistles, yes. Yes, okay. But I haven't seen a whistle as a spooky device. He manages to get his window closed. The window continues to blow eerily, however. Um, he gets himself to bed, but can't sleep. I think James did a really nice job of describing those lying in bed worrying thoughts. It says he was the victim of all manner of fatal disorders. He would lie counting the beats of his heart, convinced that it was going to stop work every moment, and would entertain grave suspicions of his lungs, brain, liver, etc. <laughs> suspicions which he was sure would be dispelled by the return of daylight. I mean, I, I can relate to that, certainly, just laying there in the dark, worried about your own mortality. Yeah, and then the vision that he has, too. Doesn't he have a—this is when he has his vision of, of the man on the beach— he finally forces himself to close his eyes and he sees this image. He's sitting and he's thinking about this man running on a beach. He seems to be running from something and he's jumping over these low walls. So far, no cause whatever for the fear of the runner had been shown. But now there began to be seen far up the shore a little flicker of something light-coloured moving to and fro with great swiftness and irregularity. Rapidly growing larger, it too declared itself as a figure in pale, fluttering draperies, ill-defined. There was something about its motion which made Parkins very unwilling to see it at close quarters. It would stop, raise arms, bow itself toward the sand, then run stooping across the beach to the water edge and back again, and then, rising upright once more, continue its course forward at a speed that was startling and terrifying. The moment came when the pursuer was hovering about from left to right, only a few yards beyond the groin where the runner lay in hiding. After two or three ineffectual castings hither and thither, came to a stop, stood upright with arms raised high, and then darted straight forward towards the groin. <laughs> now the groin is, of course, uh, those <laughs> low walls that Matt had mentioned, but <laughs> this helps me with my, hey, it's a yeah. werewolf ghost, of course it's going right for the groin. <laughs> <laughs> Just like a dog would. They're uh, used to fight erosion. They build these kind of walls that go out and they jut out perpendicular to the shore. It's a pretty scary uh, vision, though. Yeah. No, and, and this part in the 1968 BBC thing 
is really effing scary. It's really well done and really creepy. I would s- skip ahead to that part of it and watch that and then don't watch anymore. <laughs> well, I like this section too because that I, you ever lay in bed and you have like a strange dream or idea and it keeps kind of repeating in your head? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was very, you know, because you really could see how this was just a dream that he was having, you know, and would believe it was a dream. Well, there's kind of that part where you're sort of falling asleep and then you go into the dream, you kind of wake up a little bit and then you go back to sleep and you go back into the dream and you sort of, and then that's what's happening to him. I mean, I've, I've experienced that before, but that's exactly what he kind of wakes up a little bit, goes back into the dream, wakes up a little bit, goes back in the dream. Well, it's off-putting enough, this vision that he has, he decides sleep is not working for me. going to go ahead and read. When he strikes a match, it says the glare of light must have startled some creatures of the night, rats or whatnot, which he heard scurry across the floor from the side of his bed with much rustling. As if something was right there by his bed. I thought that was really creepy, too. Oh, dude. Yeah, have you had mice or, or rats in your house before? I've experienced it, and there's nothing more unsettling than hearing a rat or a mouse scurrying around in your bedroom when you're asleep because you can't find them. You can't get them however they get in and get out. Oh, that's horrible. What I liked about this was Parkinson just thought it was par for the course. I mean, he was like, oh, <laughs> rats moving, you know? Yeah, he's not that. I would be super disturbed if I thought there were rats in the other bed. <laughs> in my room with me. The next day, Parkins goes out golfing with the colonel again, and the colonel's talking about that crazy wind the night before. No, it affected everybody. It wasn't just in, in his room. The whole, everybody that was staying at the Globe Inn noticed this really strong wind. The colonel says, in my old home, we should have said someone had been whistling for it. So obviously there's some superstition or belief about a, a whistle that can call up somebody. I, but of course, Parkins lets the colonel know right away he doesn't believe in the supernatural. This always bothers him if people mention it. He has to let them know. I don't, I don't truck in that. A completely scientific, rational explanation of what happened. He lays in with this lecture. He says, you know, when people are have foolish beliefs, they'll see somebody whistling and, and then the wind will come up and they'll naturally make an association between the two. It's kind of, you know, I've launched into this lecture before. Like if you're afraid of flying, you might have feelings of apprehension every time you get on a plane. You forget about it if the flight goes well. But if, say, there's some turbulence or something, you'll say, oh, I had a premonition. And this is the way that people make these connections all the time. But when he drops the fact that he himself was whistling, I get the sense the colonel was just kind of rolling his eyes and not really listening to him. But when he says, oh, I blew this whistle, that gets the colonel's attention. Yeah. And he explains, you know, the whistle that he found. And the colonel's saying, you know, you should just throw that into the ocean. You shouldn't mess with it, which that was a weird response, too. (laughs) (laughs) That's how they treat artifacts in in Great Britain. You put it in your pocket with those mints? No, you shouldn't have done that. You should have just thrown it, cast it out into the water. (laughs) (laughs) But him and the colonel, despite the uh, supernatural wind that was going on, him and the colonel have a nice day together, way better than the day before, and decide to play on more through lunch. He thinks, well, you know, I really wanted to go check out those ruins, but I'm having such a good time with the colonel. Eh, yeah, I can go tomorrow. It's not a big deal. And it's getting dark. This kid comes running out from around the corner of the house and almost knocks them over. And the kid is freaked out. Like, he's super scared. Yeah, he says, I've seen it wave at me out of the window, and I don't like it, whatever this it is. The colonel questions him about it, and he says, well, I was playing on the grass with some of my buddies in front of the hotel, and as we were leaving... There was a figure of some sort in white, couldn't see its face, but it waved at him. It says, and it wasn't a right thing, not to say not a right person. And he describes the window that it waved out of. Parkins go, hmm, wait, that's that's my room. Yeah, they walk around to the front of the inn and they look at the window the kid described. And he says, yeah, that's that's the window by that second bed in my room. And he goes, well, nobody should be in that room. I've got the key. Nobody's been there all day. Well, wait a minute. Hold on. Maybe there's maybe the staff let themselves in and they were. They were doing something or this is something that we kind of skipped over. The second bed in the morning was all 
ruffled up. And the maid uh, said, you want me to make it? And he said, yes. So she did. When he lets himself into the room this time, he sees that that bed is all messed up again, as if somebody had been in it. They questioned the staff and nobody had come in or done anything. So he says, hmm, that's weird. I don't really have a good explanation for it, but I'm sure it, you know, something. Maybe I did it when I was taking my clothes out and packing thing, unpacking things, you know, whatever. It doesn't it doesn't really matter. So he just, yeah, he, he writes it all off and, and he and the colonel think maybe the kid was just crazy or making it up. That night... Parkins, when he heads off to his room for bed, he realizes that there aren't any curtains on the windows of his room. It wasn't something that he'd noticed the night before, but the moon is so bright tonight, it's shining right through. There's no blinds, there's no curtains, so he rigs up a kind of curtain with an umbrella, and I don't know what he uses, a, a, a rug. And then he hits the hay when some kind of clatter wakes him up. Uh, he realizes that his contraption has fallen. The moonlight is blasting in. It's full moon, and it's just right at the right angle. It comes right into his room. He flips on his bed and sees that there's some kind of movement in the other bed, and he thinks, oh, God, is the, are those rats in the bed moving around? And the way it moves, it seems like it couldn't be a rat. It has to be something else. The reader will hardly, perhaps, imagine how dreadful it was to him to see a figure suddenly sit up in what he had known was an empty bed. He was out of his own bed in one bound and made a dash towards the window where lay his only weapon, the stick with which he had propped his screen. This was, as it turned out, the worst thing he could have done, because the personage in the empty bed, with a sudden motion, slipped from the bed and took up a position with outspread arms between the two beds and in front of the door. Parkins watched it in a horrid perplexity. Somehow, the idea of getting past it and escaping through the door was intolerable to him. He could not have borne, he didn't know why, to touch it. And as for its touching him, he would sooner dash himself through the window than have that happen. It stood for the moment in a band of dark shadow, and he had not seen what its face was like. Now it began to move in a stooping posture, and all at once the spectator realized, with some horror and some relief, it must be blind. For it seemed to feel about with its muffled arms in a groping and random fashion, turning half away from him. It became suddenly conscious of the bed he had just left, and darted towards it, and bent over, and felt the pillows in a way which made Parkin shudder as he had never in his life thought it possible. In a very few moments, it seemed to know that the bed was empty, and then moving forward into the area of light and facing the window, it showed for the first time what manner of thing it was. Parkins, who very much dislikes being questioned about it, did once describe something of it in my hearing and I gathered that what he chiefly remembers about it is a horrible, an intensely horrible, face of crumpled linen. What expression he read upon it he could not or would not tell, but that the fear of it went nigh to maddening him is certain. This is a sheeted ghost. Yeah. Is this where the sheeted ghost thing comes from? Is this is it this story? I actually found that image quite horrifying, the rumpled linen for the face for a moment, but then when you realize it's, it seems ridiculous, this bed sheet attacking you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it was already a tradition in the theater. Mm -hmm. I, I know that ghosts traditionally would uh, appear in armor or something that looked outdated to suggest that they were ghosts. But around the 1800s, when they started to lower uh, actors in when they were ghosts and the armor would clank and stuff, they tried to come up with other ways to say there's something insubstantial here and they would just cover them with a white sheet. I think it was a theatrical tradition first. Oh, but this is the first time I've seen it evidenced in a, in a story. And, you know, every Halloween you got kids walking around with uh, sheets draped over them. So. Yeah. 
But, you know, I found it was amusing because you and I were discussing the Money Diggers last month. And there are all these ghosts that don't have any rules. You remember you kept saying, it doesn't make yeah. sense. Why did this ghost stay in a room and how can he do that? And then here we have it, the most stereotypical ghost there could be. <laughs> like if I was a ghost, I'd be like, hey, come on. That's a little that's a little racist. <laughs> you know, we don't all wear sheets. <laughs> that's a stereotype. OK. And then the colonel busts in and he kind of all, all of a sudden it just collapses. Right. The, the sheet just collapses. He sees him. Mm-hmm fighting Mm -hmm. but if i were the colonel and i walked in i'd just see this guy by the window like fighting with a bed sheet (laughs) it's a very strange image but the colonel is convinced that something bad has happened so he decides to stay in the guy's room all night wrapped in a rug yeah well the thing is i mean he obviously leans more that way in the supernatural you know he was the one that told him he should have thrown that whistle out and that's obvious he realizes that something serious really did happen to him you know he's Mm -hmm. already in that mindset so he thinks okay this this is real i mean he does the colonel says you know what i don't think that thing well the colonel doesn't think that the ghost would have actually done anything to him. He thinks the ghost's whole intention was just to be really scary, which I found amusing. Well, to drive him insane. To drive him insane, which luckily the colonel burst in at the right time before that could happen. Yeah. And, and as you say, the the colonel sleeps on the other in the ghost bed, wrapped up in a rug. Rogers, the guy who cr- is crashing the whole party, thankfully arrives the next day. The colonel does throw the whistle into the ocean, and I think they it says that there was some black smoke coming from the end. So I think they burned the, the rumpled sheets that the ghost had been in. Ah, I think is what had happened. That's the implication there. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is the conclusion of the story. There is really nothing more to tell. But, as you may imagine, the professor's views on certain points are less clear-cut than they used to be. His nerves, too, have suffered. He cannot even now see a surplice hanging on a door quite unmoved. And the spectacle of a scarecrow in a field late on a winter afternoon has cost him more than one sleepless night. That's the end of the story. What the heck was going on in that story? This is a bit more weird. There's no clear-cut ghostness. I mean, we're saying that it's a ghost, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there is a dead person there. It could be some otherworldly entity, some creature from some other place, like a a demon or an angel or something. I don't know. It's vague enough that it I mean, it does fall. This is a weird tale. Yeah. I mean, we're calling it a ghost just because, it, you know, it's a moving sheet. It's also blind, which we didn't really mention. Yeah, we didn't really talk about that yet. When it gets out of the bed, it's feeling around for him. And then it accidentally strikes him. And that's how it knows where he's at, which I, which actually kind of scared me. That's pretty creepy. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very creepy story. I, I see why people like this one. And it is one of the, the better James or James stories, in my opinion. No, but here's the question I have for you, though. As soon as he gets the whistle... He's already being pursued. Mm-hmm. Blowing it didn't seem to summon this thing, whatever it is, or maybe it's what made it come closer to him, but it was already out there. And maybe it couldn't find him. It couldn't locate him until he whistled because it's blind. Oh, uh, and Matt just solved it for me. Knew we had you on the show for a reason. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, your gift of insight has made us strong. But if it's a dog whistle and the ghost, I believe it was the ghost of a werewolf. Of course. It's a reasonable conclusion. It is February, which is Werewolf History Month. So... We have to wrap this into werewolves. A blind werewolf. A blind werewolf. (laughs) Ghost of a blind werewolf. Matt, what did you think of this story? I kind of thought it was a classic tale of a a hubris sort of a person who doesn't believe in the supernatural getting his comeuppance at the end. Right. And I like the way it built. You know, you see something, but it's no big deal. And then it gets gradually creepier with the boy. And then it reaches the crescendo in the end. Uh, So I like that part of it. So uh, that's it for Mr. James. That is the beginning, a very rough beginning to Werewolf History Month. We didn't think that there were any werewolf stories left, but when we were scouring supernatural horror and literature, we see that there is a novel in there called The Door of the Unreal by Gerald Biss. And this is a werewolf book. 
Mm -hmm. I think a little bit in the tradition of Dracula where it's told through correspondence and that kind of thing. Now, it's a longer book. I don't know if we're going to cover the whole thing. Chris and I have decided we're just going to dive into it and see what we think. Yeah. Uh, If it's something that merits covering uh, over a couple episodes or if it ends up being like, you know, Lair of the White Worm where we just say no. (laughs) We'll dispatch this in one. So we're going to check that out. The Door of the Unreal by Gerald Biss. I want to thank John Hancock for reading. He is always an outstanding voice and it's a pleasure to have him on the show. Absolutely. And Matt, I want to thank you for coming on the show and and figuring all this out for us. I want to please pick up Matt's book, Nonprofit. It is for sale now on Amazon.com. Thanks so much for having me. You are most welcome. And with that, I am Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Matt Barisi. And you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. HPPodcraft.com. podcraft.com